Welcome to the Conduit Deeper podcast, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the details that surround our current sermon series, from current events to fascinating finds, to conversations that take us deeper into the Word. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to our Deeper Podcast. My name is Mo, Executive Pastor at Conduit Church, joined with our lead today, Tyler. And this week, our very special guest and good friend um, from Israel, in Israel right, right now, Catherine Vanderbeek. And um, she is here to kind of share what's happening, um, just kind of from the, the horse's mouth, per se, on the ground. Darren, you've spent a lot of time with Catherine over the years. Uh, what has been some some of the important insights that she has brought to some of the trips that you've been on? Yeah, uh, Catherine, I was just sharing this with someone before we started this. I don't know the, of anybody that has, has the um, the immediate recall of so much information without any notes. Like, it's actually remarkable. She's like a human encyclopedia uh commentary and preacher all in one um like it's <laughs> you're making me blush well it's true like I'm like how does she keep all that in her head but uh but now um we've had many you're right we've we've gotten to know each other and we've had many long bus rides and you guys and you know your husband your children were some of the first people that I thought about when we started seeing what was unfolding on Saturday on you know, Shabbat so I guess honestly, the first question is because there's going to be a lot of people that will watch this that are that have been on our trips with us, and they're going to want me to ask this question first, which is how are you and how are your family? So it's not easy at all. I will say that the whole nation really is in a state of shock, and we're part of this nation, so we're in a state of shock with them. Um, we feel like. This nation hasn't experienced anything this serious since 1973, Yom Kippur War. And some people in the press are noting that no, there has not been the same loss of Jewish life in one day since the Holocaust. Wow. And that's a pretty stark and shocking kind of statistic, if we can call it a statistic, but that's the reality that we woke up to and we're still counting the bodies like we still don't fully understand the number of people who perished shabbat yeah so um it, it's deeply shocking it took us a while to understand the seriousness of what was unfolding we're kind of used to rocket attacks and to be honest we're pretty blase about them we're used to them flying over our head which is right. something that nobody should be used to um but when the full horror of what what had happened really hit us. I think it took time to sink in. It's almost like you go into denial at first and then the reality slowly begins to sink in. And after that, you have a whole bunch of unanswered questions that I think most of our nation has. So my primary concern really has been for my children. Yes. Um, trying to shield them from not only the barrage of rockets that's coming against them, but also the barrage of information and um messaging you know on on whatsapp and all these things because they're getting messages from all the people in all of their classes i'm afraid i'm here i'm in a shelter i'm so it's not only that the children are dealing with their own stress and their own fear but they're dealing with everyone else's stress and fear around them and the effect 
it's very hard to understand actually the effects on the children. So my yeah. my primary concern really has been been for them. Even before this time, there were um, I think it was last summer there was a camp run by one of the prayer houses in Jerusalem, and the leaders of that camp felt led to um, pray for children who were struggling with suicidal thoughts and depression and so on. And at that time, we were talking about children that had come from good believing homes who knew the Lord and the number that were struggling with those things was staggering. When you now add this on top of that already very difficult situation. Yeah. Yeah. The number of people in this country right now that are suffering from severe trauma, I think is basically the whole nation and especially the children. So my kids mostly are okay but there are moments where you see what's what's really going on inside and what they're processing and their fears and and so on so yeah Mm -hmm. it's not easy to be watching that you you said something catherine and by the way for those listening watching uh we have to we have a duty like a biblical command to pray for the peace of jerusalem but we also Mm -hmm. have just the you know, just the Christian responsibility to not just pray, for, pray for the nation. Yes. And pray for the the people. A nation isn't just a what, a nation is a who. And now we have names attached to that. So pray for the Vanderbilt family um, and, and all the other families there as well. But there's, there are names, uh, there are human lives behind every statistic. And you said something, Catherine, that really struck me because you know, it was with almost immediately they were starting to call this Israel's 9-11. And I understand why they would say that, you know, I'm sure people that are my age, I remember that day and the uncertainty. But the Holocaust is actually, it seems to me, you disagree if you want to, but is a more accurate representation because this was not indiscriminate. This was ethnic cleansing. They were specifically attacking, targeting Jewish people, right? Not not just indiscriminately killing, but Jewish people specifically, which is very much more like the Holocaust than it is like 9-11. There, sure, lots of people died, but it wasn't like they were going after specific G, uh, DNA or a bloodline like what happened this week. Does that is that what you mean by that? Mm-hmm. So the, the nations that surround us ever since the state of Israel was reborn in 1948, they have been their rally cry really has been to drive the nation of Israel into the sea to to make sure that we don't exist anymore and to say that you know from the Mediterranean until the Jordan it belongs to the the Islamic people of this region and so it's really a miracle that we have survived up until this point we're just six percent of the Muslim Middle East and statistically it makes no sense that we're that we're here so yeah, it was very targeted and very deliberate. And even today, they've been sending threats to specific communities. If you don't get out of such and such a community by such and such a time, you know, we're going to obliterate you. Um, but on hmm. the complete flip side of that, I was in a shopping mall earlier today, and behind me was a Muslim woman and her daughter. And I could hear from their phone that they had the red alert app on their phone. What does that mean? It means that every time a rocket is coming over, your phone alerts you. 
and for whatever reason they had left the sound on it so i could hear every time their phone was picking up a, a red alert which was actually a barrage of i think about 15 within 20 seconds something like that it was it was going like crazy so i realized okay if they have that app on the phone they're probably struggling with exactly the same things i am right now and i really felt like the lord said talk to them because mm. the one thing the enemy wants is for us to be divided and to hate one another god's plan for the middle east is a bit different um maybe let me read just a verse from isaiah 19. and that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the middle of the earth. So God's plan for the Middle East is that the peoples of this region will worship him together as a blessing in the middle of the earth. So I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna allow this horrific situation now to color how I see every single person that has you know, an Islamic um, head covering. I'm gonna to speak to them like they're human beings. And I was so glad I did because yesterday, a barrage of rockets, really a barrage of rockets came over my village and we were in the shelter twice yesterday. And um, some of the rockets have been very, very close to my house. I'm talking about meters from my house. Wow. And um, as I was chatting to her, I discovered that um, she came from Enrafa, which is, uh, a little village just down the mountain from me and she told me that actually one of the rockets had hit her village and i had already been aware that the rockets had hit in abu Ghosh, which is five minutes from our house it's where we do our shopping it's ostensibly a muslim village but they're very very friendly to us and you know we, we go there we do our shopping people like to go there to eat on shabbat because they have really great restaurants and yesterday i knew that a rocket had come over and it had hit the mosque in the center of Abogosh, which I thought was pretty interesting. But to my sadness, I discovered it didn't only hit the mosque, it hit somebody's home and a 20 year old young man in Abogosh lost their lives yesterday. And so from just taking three minutes to talk to this woman, I understood, wow, we're in completely the same boat. Yes, as maybe targeting the Jewish people, but here she is, a Muslim living five minutes from me, who is just as scared as me. You know, when they send over the rockets, it's not like they're aiming them with precision, right? They're just aiming them towards Jerusalem, let's say, or they're aiming them towards Tel Aviv. It's not like when we send a missile and it's targeted to the square meter of where we want it to land, and it does that. They're just sending them out and hoping they're going somewhere. So they don't actually have any control as to whether it's killing Jews or Muslims, right? So in this instance, this young man um, lost his life. And so it, it was actually heartwarming to me to have those few minutes of this human dynamic with this woman to remember and to remind myself, okay, not all my neighbors are behaving like monsters because some of them honestly, truly are behaving like monsters. What they have done, to the people that they abducted and kidnapped and took to Gaza are unimaginable. They are unspeakable. My girls are receiving images of these things on their mobile phones every morning, and I can't wow. protect them from it because I don't. I don't get to their phone first. I can't vet every Telegram page or every whatever it is that they're looking at. So my girls are fully aware of what Hamas have been doing to children as young as a year old. Maybe I should speak this out just to give the reality of it. 
Yes, please do. One page, that, that, that's this image that came out of one-year-old children, something like this, this kind of age group, and they've got them in a cage and they're taunting them, they're laughing at them. They've been torturing animals, they have been beheading people, they have murdered people in cold blood who are begging for mercy. Um, you were talking a little while ago about names. And I felt like the Lord said to me yesterday, I want you to find out the name of every believing soldier in your community. And I want you to pray for them by name. And I want you to send those names out. So I started to collect all of those names. And that was one of the things that we were doing in our prayer meeting earlier today was just to name those soldiers before the Lord. Um, so far, I've collected the names of 130 Messianic Jewish soldiers. Wow. And guys, already some of them have not come home. Already. Already. These are parents just like me who've just sent out their kids to defend their country and already some of them are not coming home. Some of them are from pastors, families. It's horrific. So I'm crying to the Lord every day that these soldiers will come home alive. And I felt like he said to me, Catherine, you're not eating breakfast until they come home. In particular, some of my friends in this community where I've like, just don't eat until they come home. That's it. You know, the the seriousness of what these young men, some of them are 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old. They're the brothers of kids that my children play with. They're, they're children in the congregation, fathers of families that, that are in Haradah. You know, these, these are real people that we know that we interact with. My husband already has so many people that work in his office. It's a big office that has more than 100 people in it. But he came back today, honestly, he was traumatized just from hearing what was going on with the people who were working around him who have already lost loved ones. There's an entire kibbutz in the south of the country that doesn't exist anymore because they massacred the entire kibbutz and destroyed it completely. There was, um, this is a pretty interesting one. And um, there's a lot of praying to do because at the end of the day, if we study scripture, we have to admit that Israel's enemies are not the problem. Mm. At the end of the day, Israel is the problem. Because how can I say that? I can say that because I live here and I love my nation with all my heart. But when Israel was in right relationship with God, God dealt with her enemies. And when Israel was not in right relationship with God and in a place of unity with each other, what did God do? He sent the king of Assyria, he sent the king of Babylon, he sent the pharaohs of Egypt, and he used them to, to give Israel really a chance to repent and to turn to God. Effectively, he used our enemies, dare I say it, to bring judgment on us. And for months, I have felt like we're sticking our finger in God's eye. Eventually, that's not going to go well for us. So actually, I think the most serious prayer point that we should have for Israel is that she will repent and she will return to God. And in particular, on a governmental level, because if you read the book of Chronicles and you watch what happened to the nations, it's all about who was the king. Was it a good king? Was it a righteous king? Was it a king that wanted to, to worship God? Or was it a king that ran after idols and was prideful in his heart and didn't put the nation first? The consequence for the nation always was very serious. And we've had this crazy situation in our government now for years. 
And our army commanders have been warning Netanyahu in particular, what is happening in our country right now, it's dangerous. You're weakening us to the point that our enemies are laughing at us. And to be honest, that's exactly what happened. And our enemies are even writing and gloating about the fact that we are so disunified because they saw it as their opportunity. They saw it as Israel's moment of weakness, and they used that in order to strike. They've been planning this for a year. We have the best intelligence on the face of the earth. How did this happen? And there can be many, many, many answers in the natural realm, and there's all kinds of things flying around, and it's really hard to know what is true, although I have some opinions about it. I'm not necessarily going to share them at this point. But I think that ultimately we can say that the only way that this could happen is if for a moment God lifted his hand. Right? Yeah. Up until now, we had the best iron dome on the face of the earth. It was the hand of God. And it's as if for a moment on that Shabbat, for whatever reason, he lifted his hand. And I think we have to cry out to him that he will put his hand back. Because if not, there's no human agency on the face of the earth that can protect us. I know that there are aircraft carriers and so on on their way here, but if God's hand is not protecting us, it's over. Mm. It's over. Catherine, in in many ways, um, this podcast will be, uh, for many of those listening, kind of an Israel like beginner level for folks to understand exactly what's going on and who's who and who are the players and the names. So when they, even when they hear Gaza or they hear Hamas, not everyone knows what those terms mean or the historical significance of that, uh, of, okay. of that area in that group. Could you, could you share just a little bit of, of historical context for what has led up to this weekend? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay, so there's probably a few terms that are important to define, and and you just gave two of them, Gaza and Hamas. Probably we should also define Palestinian. Who are they? What is going on? Why is there always such a conflict between Israel and those that are called Palestinians? Maybe we should also define the West Bank and where that term came from and how it's used. Um, so I'll start with some of them. If I forget some, then <laughs> bring me back and remind me you haven't defined this one. Um, okay, so the Gaza Strip is an area that is just north of the border with Egypt. And it's actually an area that historically Egypt isolated. Um, it wasn't Israel who isolated that area and turned it into a human prison. Actually, it was Egypt that did that. Um, so it really is an area that is like a human prison. It could be a paradise, but it is not Israel that made it like that. And that's sometimes very hard for people to understand. There is, um, an incredibly high density of human population in that area. It's an area that is on the coastal plain. It has beautiful beaches and fertile lands and, The people that live there live in the most horrendous imaginable situation. It is very, very, very difficult for them. And I think we need to pray for God's solution for Gaza, not the human solution. So you have all these people who are living there 
and they are ruled by this organization that is called Hamas. And this organization, we have no other words for it than to call them a terrorist organization because truly that is who they are. Now, they were voted into power by the people who live in the Gaza Strip, but that is not because the people who lived in the Gaza Strip wanted to be ruled by a terrorist organization, and it is not necessarily because they aligned with their values. It is more because they thought that they would bring them a better living standard than the ones who rule in the area that is called the West Bank, and the ones who rule that are called Fatah. Now, the West Bank is not connected physically to Gaza. It's a separate piece of territory. And Yeshua referred to that piece of territory as Judea and Samaria. Now, he called it that because after the time that King Solomon died, when, when David and Solomon were ruling the land, that was the largest size that Israel had ever been. They were good kings who followed after God, at least until the end of Solomon's wife when he went astray because of all of his wife's idolatry. But um, during their reign, essentially, the kingdom of Israel went from the Euphrates in the north to the Nile in the south. It was a huge territory. But the thing that happened after King Solomon died, because he fell into idolatry, God didn't make the judgment during his lifetime. He made it during the lifetime of his son. And what happened is that at that point, this huge kingdom was lost, it shrank, and then it was divided into two. And from that point on, you had Judea, and that was the area around Jerusalem. And then in the north, you had Samaria, and that was um, the area that was ruled by um, Jeroboam. So how did that area go from being called Judea and Samaria to being called the West Bank? Well, Israel has faced many wars since her rebirth in 1948. And um, what happened after the War of Independence in 1948, Israel was um, attacked simultaneously on multiple fronts and Jordan invaded, conquered and occupied the area that Yeshua called Judea and Samaria. From that moment on, it became called the West Bank. Why? because it's the area that is west, the west bank of the Jordan River. On the other side, you have the east bank that became the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan of today. So that's where that term comes from. So these two areas, Gaza and the west bank, are mostly, well, Gaza completely occupied by um, um, Arabic speakers, the vast majority of whom are Muslim, a very small proportion are Christian. Now, within Gaza, until 2005, there were actually Jewish communities. There were little Jewish villages within the area of the Gaza Strip. Now, I really think that we can date what is happening today back to 2005. And what happened in 2005 is that Ariel Sharon agreed to dismantle the Jewish communities, not only in Judea and Samaria, uh, sorry, not only in the Gaza Strip, but also in the northern part of Samaria and um, in the Jordan Valley as well. There were also Jewish people who were living in Jericho until 2005. Ariel Sharon made the decision to dismantle those Jewish settlements 
it didn't end well for him because what happened is that the Orthodox Jews used the, the Kabbalah, this form of Jewish mysticism, to pronounce a curse on him. And after that, what happened is that he went into, co into a coma and he never came out of that coma. But if we look at what has been happening in the land in the last year or a little more, we've been having terrorist attacks in places that we never had them before. In the Jordan Valley, just outside of Jericho, just below uh, Mount Abal and Mount Grazim, which are the mountain of blessing and cursing in the north, there was a pattern that had completely changed. And then we started to hear these rumors that now Hamas are also in Judea and Samaria, where they never were before, that they had somehow managed to plant terror cells. Now, I don't know how much truth there is in that, but definitely the pattern of terrorism changed completely. And then a number of months ago, our troops had to go into uh, Yenin, uh, which is right in the northern part of Samaria. And the reason was because there were so many terror attacks on the road that led to the Jewish settlements to the point where I was not allowed to go any there anymore with tourists. I would very often take people up to the mountain of blessing and cursing, couldn't go there anymore. It became a no-go area. And I really believe that that dates to the time that Ariel Sharon said, we're going to dismantle the Jewish settlements because that meant that we totally took our hands off this area. We no longer had any military control, no oversight, no nothing. And so they started to build villages on main roads to make sure that we couldn't drive through them and so on. And um, it really created the atmosphere where, where terrorism could, could move in and take over those areas that we had evacuated. And actually, biblically, that makes sense, because God says everywhere that you place the soles of your feet, I will give you the land. But if you remove the soles of your feet, you've effectively given it over, right? And that's that's what we did. And now we're living with the very horrible consequences of that, a massive loss of life, not only on our side, right? There's also massive loss of life on the other side, too. And I remember... If I'm and correct me if I'm wrong, Catherine, but when that started in Gaza, this was another one of the land for peace kind of deals. If you'll just give us this spot, then we'll give you peace. Yeah, which has never happened in all of the years that that every time a land for peace deal, uh, land is given up and then peace is not given. But correct me if I'm wrong, but. So, so even like the difference between Fatah and Hamas, I'm trying to think in the it's it's not like Republican versus Democrat in the United States. It's um it, it's actually way more insidious than that because what what I remember was, and, and I think it's still this way. So Mahmoud Abbas would be considered the president or leader of the P Palestinian organization like Fatah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So which technically means over the Palestinian, the people called Palestinians. But even Abbas couldn't go into Gaza. Like land, it would be like the president of the United States is not allowed to go to Texas because he could be killed or uh, or captured. So mm -hmm. it's, I think in America, in fact, I know it is, I've been watching social media uh, and I actually had to turn it off because I just wanted to drive, to, I have pastors that I know as friends that I want to drive to their house and just wring their necks because they, they, they're either willfully ignorant or, um, or in, unintentionally ignorant, but the, the, the whatever it is, the case has been a lot of ignorance. 
but but they treat like um palestinian is like this unilateral people like it's and just like america that's not the way it is so there's the americans that think this there's americans that think that yeah but inside of that it's it's important i think to differentiate too that Fatah are no they're no angels like they're they're there's no good guys in this story but it's like the, there's the bad you know there's the evil that was happening through you know Yasser Arafat the PLO that turned into Abbas but then Hamas was like next level evil um I saw uh I think it was Harvard yesterday where they had in our country like people who would identify themselves as being transsexual or homosexual and in support of Gaza or Palestinians. And it's like, it's like chickens being in support of Kentucky fried chicken. Like you, you clearly don't know what you're doing because Hamas, we know for a fact that, you know, uh, executes homosexuals. Like it's not only just frowned upon, like it's, you could be physically, uh, they're not good people. Maybe I'll put it that way. The people like Ilhan Omar, people in the United States, uh, who are speaking out uh, in behalf of the Palestinian people, it's like they're doing it at the, by directly ignoring that the the thing that they want the most, right, which is equal rights for everybody, is the very thing that they stand against, which includes mm-hmm. Fatah, it includes Hamas. But Hamas specifically, which is who in- executed this attack, financed by Iran. I, I ran, and we don't have, we, we certainly don't have time because you got to get to bed at some point. I'm sure you're exhausted, but you know, I ran, uh, uh, I, even through Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, Lebanon, there's like the strip of Shia Islam, uh, and, and Iran is Shia. Uh, most Arab, like Saudi Arabia, uh, Hamas, they, they would consider themselves Sunni. Which, by the way, and that's not like Baptist versus Pentecostals. It's more like in Ireland, you know, the Protestants against the Catholics. Against, these are violent confrontations they've had inside. But, but the point being that Iran, for, for this place, has been financing a Sunni organization, which appears to me to using them as just as a puppet for their own evil. Because in their version of Islam, uh, the Sunnis don't make it like it's Shia that will dominate the world. So they, they have, there'd be no love loss for them. The only thing they're united in is their hatred for Jerusalem. The, but that's a, you know, Iran is financing Hamas. And, and obviously if you're even an, uh, a cursory education of, uh, in, in Gaza, some paragliders and some guys in guns, they're not going to defeat Israel. It seems like they're trying to Iran via Hamas is trying to, lure Israel into a wider war that that would stretch into, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, Lebanon. I know that there was, there's been some rumors of shots and being exchanged on the Lebanese border with Hezbollah. Um, and, and this is probably far too academic, but I guess the question from, for you is, do you, do you guys sense that this is an Iranian backed thing where Hamas is a puppet or is it, is it just simple, Terrorists being terrorists trying to get into paradise with 72 virgins. No, there's no question that Iran is behind this. Um, we always say that Iran is like the, the head of this Medusa and Hezbollah and uh, Hamas and so on. They're like the tentacles. They're how Iran reaches into the country and 
when our country has been in such chaos in recent months, what Iran has been saying is, hey guys, the best way to destroy Israel is if all the terrorist groups in Judea and Samaria unite and, you know, attack simultaneously. And really we are facing simultaneous fronts right now. Um, there have been incursions also from the northern border. There have been rockets from the northern border. I have um, friends whose sons are serving up there right now and they're trying to stop that escalating because otherwise I would imagine our military is going to be spread so thin. They've actually just called up another 360,000 reservists today. So that shows you how serious our government thinks that the situation right. is in right a country now. a country as small as Israel 360,000 is an enormous number percentage-wise of the population, which shows exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know the, I couldn't do an apples to apples comparison, but that would be the equivalent of millions and millions of Americans because we're a population of 350 million, give or take. So, you know, yeah. 350,000 in Israel yeah. is enormous. Yeah, it is. And the fact that you were talking about Iran and Saudi, what everyone is asking here is, is this because last week Israel was pursuing peace with Saudi? Like we had people from our government there. We had um, one, I think it was the foreign minister who was there and he had his, um, the things that we celebrate Sukkot with, the etrog and the lulav, and he had them in his hotel in Saudi. I mean, this is incredible. This is unheard of. And what many people think is that Iran didn't like this. They didn't like this seeming possible alliance between Israel and Saudi. And so they um, responded like this. I don't know how much truth there is to that, because it would seem that this whole thing has been being planned for the last year. So yeah, it could no, have I'm, had something to do with the timing, but we're not really sure yet. I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. You know, Saudi and Israel were on the brink of a peace deal um, as kind of an an offshoot or an, an addendum to the Abraham Accords that happened, what was it, a couple of years ago now, several years ago, under the Trump administration. But yes. yes, it was talked about that in the coming weeks, there would be a, a quote-unquote peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And obviously, since Saturday, they have retracted that and said, basically, you know, they're, we're back to square one. Um Maybe if you could shed just a little light on that, those Abraham Accords and, and what that meant in terms of allies becoming um, or, or the surrounding countries, the surrounding countries becoming allies or maybe not allies, but at least what that meant in terms of a peace deal. OK, so there's many different ways to see these Abraham Accords. And um, at the time that they were signed, I was probably one of the most outspoken people who sounded a very serious alarm against these accords. And um, many people in the Middle East were very happy. They were rejoicing. They were talking about trade and travel and so on. And bizarrely enough, about two weeks ago, I was actually in Dubai with my husband. Um, and uh, it was very, very interesting to, to be there. Um, but at the time that the Abraham Accords were signed, I really felt like the Lord direct me, directed me in a very specific way to research what was going on behind the scenes, because I think any peace deal in the Middle East, we should be paying attention to, right? Because one day there's going to be a false one. And I think we need to know um, when that is, when it, when it happens. It's the beginning of another 
chapter in the in the end of the story before the return of Yeshua, let's say, right? So I'm always looking looking at these things, but in that case, I really felt like the Lord showed me the things that he wanted me to look into. So one of the first things that he had me look into was um, the Abrahamic um, family house, which is located in Abu Dhabi. And what it is in physical terms, um, there are three religious structures there. So one of the structures is for the Christians, it's a church. One of the structures is a mosque for the Muslims. And the third one is um, a synagogue for the Jews. And everyone lived happily ever after, right? Only they didn't. Because there cannot be any unity between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, right? And I think this is one of the greatest deceptions is to say, oh, we have these three Abrahamic religions, they are worshiping the same God. Well, no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. And if that is part of what is behind these accords, then we should already have our alarm bells ringing. Um, so if you start to dig behind the Abrahamic family house, you come to the higher committee of human fraternity and um, you discover that it's headed by uh, the Pope with various other religious figures on the panel, some of whom are Muslims, some of whom are Jews, one of whom has no faith at all. And um, if you dig behind the text, not only of the Abraham Accords, but also of the two other peace deals that were in the pipeline during the Trump administration, the more I read into that, the more alarm bells I had, because a central tenant of all of these peace accords is a Palestinian state and dividing Jerusalem. And just months before any of that came out, Netanyahu was talking about um, exerting sovereignty over the Jordan Valley and, and many things over Judea and Samaria and so on. And the instant that these accords were on the table, all of that just evaporated into thin air. And it was like he has said all these things in a very beautiful way, but he was not actually standing behind any of them. And at that moment, I really started to feel like, wow, I was deceived. I thought that he was going in one direction. And then I realized mm -mm, he wasn't. And um, I think it was the day that it was signed, I felt like the Lord wanted me to go up onto the Temple Mount. And I felt like he wanted me to speak from the book of Thessalonians where it says, um, when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. And now I really feel horrible saying that sentence because we're seeing sudden destruction now, right? And when the accords were signed, the rockets were already starting to go over and I was like, um, what kind of peace is this actually? If rockets are already flying over towards Jerusalem, it's not the kind of peace that we think it is. And um, so I felt like all of these accords that were being written at the same time, they were the peace part of the equation. What was the safety part of the equation? I don't know if you remember, but at the time that the Abraham Accords were being signed, something else was being pushed on a global level, right? And its slogan was safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. So the only two things that you were hearing during that whole season were peace, 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 peace in the Middle East, peace, 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 peace. And then we were hearing safe and effective, safe and effective. And I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. And then there was a statistic that came out on Facebook of the most vaccinated nations on the face of the earth. What were they at that time? Number one, Israel. 
number two, uh, Bahrain. Num oh, no, the other way around, sorry. Number two, United Ar Arab Emirates. Number three, Bahrain. Number four, United States of America. And I went, that is surely not coincidence. Of the more than 150 nations on the face of the earth, why are the top four the ones that just signed this accord? Fast forward a little bit, our borders are closed completely, right? Um, one would think that a virus should touch every people group without discrimination. But what we discovered during that period is that the virus was reserved for Christians and Jews. I'm joking, but why do I say that? Because actually during that time period, when our borders were closed, when almost no planes were allowed to land in Ben-Gurion, who was allowed to come? Very interesting. The people from Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. And what did it do? It swelled the Islamic presence on the Temple Mount and in Jerusalem. And it meant that the believers from the nations could no longer come up to Jerusalem in fulfillment of Isaiah 2, worshipping God in Jerusalem, right? The Jewish people couldn't come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Lord for two years. But who could come? Very interesting, the Muslims from Bahrain and from the United Emirates. And I said, wow, they don't have the virus, but the Christians do. Fascinating. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, this is not what we think. This is really not what we think. And so in my sounding of the alarm, I guess I was trying to say, wake up, wake up, wake up. This is this is the preparation for the one world religion. This is the preparation for the rise of the Antichrist. And I'm not I'm not a person who wants to set dates or anything like this, but I think we can notice these things and say, wow, the hour is is really, really yeah. late. And then yeah, the, that was, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, because you're right, we don't set dates, but the Bible does say we can tell the seasons. Um, in America right now, it's autumn, the leaves are changing. You know, so we don't, there's not an official day where fall is officially here. There is one on a calendar, but it doesn't matter. But the seasons are changing, and Jesus said you would know the seasons, and uh, the leaves are turning in in the nations right now, including there. And by the way, I I'm willing to bet the vast majority of people that hear this and in the world had no idea that during that time that there were Muslims being invited into, allowed to into Israel, uh, while Christians were were not. And they can put it under the guise of vaccinated or not vaccinated, but it, that's exactly what it was, which was. Uh, more Muslim population coming in to, like you said, to the Temple Mount, uh, while Christians and, and Jews from other countries were not getting in there. So it definitely, uh, it, it, whether it was a, a purposeful thing planned by a government official, it was certainly purposeful in, in, in the kingdom of darkness in moving yeah. the needle to, to war and to destruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Let me ask you this then, because. Um, this is a religious war. People can talk about it being geopolitical. And when I say religious, what I mean is that Islam is at war within itself. Uh, Iran has been funding, which is why it, it maybe doesn't even matter that they knew that those accords were going to be signed. This is something that Iran has been planning for a while with the accords. One of the things that they've done very well, and they don't make any secrets about it, but we can actually go to Saudi Arabia, go to Yemen, right? The Houthi rebels, which are a Shia group funded by Iran. So they're just basically outsourcing their violence to try to overthrow the government in Yemen, the government ultimately in Saudi Arabia. And again, it's not like Saudi Arabia is 
got clean hands. 19 of the 20 hijackers on 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia, including Osama bin Laden. So it's Sunni Islam versus Shia Islam. It's a, it's a, it's a religion that came along hundreds of years after Jesus's resurrection. Um, a, a prophet, right? They call himself a prophet, thinks he had a dream. He actually thinks it's from Satan. His wife tells him, talks him into the fact that it's uh, he, that it was an angel that spoke to him. And for the last few hundred years, uh, it, like the Quran is literally the opposite. And Abraham, Isaac, right? It's it's uh, it's not Isaac that's the you know that, that's the good son. It's 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 literally the flip and the reversal of the Torah and and of of Christianity. So religious on their side because they want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth because it's a it's their command to you know to conquer the land to conquer the the world by the way. Uh, jihad in the name of Allah. So when you start talking to about secular progressives, especially in the United States, like Hillary Clinton or, or, or uh, Barack Obama, that they've they've got it in their mind. It almost seems like the, the, if this is just a logical thing. So we just want to want everybody to get along. So we're going to you know tell them to be nice to each other and and make peace deals. And it, it and I, I say this because I remember when. When Hillary Clinton was running for president, she was talking in America about abortion and saying, well, people just need to change their minds. Saying to me as a believer in Jesus who believes all life is valuable and that it it begins at conception, that I'm just going to change my mind because she told me to is insanity. But reversing that back over the Middle East, that's what feels like it's been being said here that if we can, you know, President Obama, whatever, if they can just uh, sit down and negotiate a deal, but they they remove the idea that there is a religious underpinning to this that has nothing to do with logic and it has everything to do with the well with satan the kingdom of darkness you can't you can't negotiate with a rattlesnake at the end of the day i'm not saying that palestinian people that are rattlesnakes but i am saying that the ayatollah that uh the the kingdom you know in in saudi arabia that those are rattlesnakes they're the, you know, the kingdom of darkness you can't negotiate with them the only thing you can do is to cut their heads off because they're rattlesnakes. When you reverse that now back into Israel, one of the things that is is true, I actually shared this yesterday online, that Hamas has made, they've made no, no hesitation. They're very clear about what they want. They want Israel gone. They want Jewish people dead. And on the Jewish side, you know, has has the government of, of Israel made mistakes? Absolutely. As every, every government's going to make mistakes, they're going to do things wrong. They're going to have bad motives, whatever. But to compare them to the two, like right now, you've got indiscriminate murders and massacre of just civilians on purpose. When civilians have died in Gaza or West Bank, it's been a, a casualty of war, not an intentional. It's just this. It's it's tragic and it's horrible, but it's when you've got terrorists hiding behind civilians, it, it happens. But oh. the motives are so different. Yes. How do you? So I've, I've and I've talked about Judaism. We've talked about Islam. Let's get to the Christianity point. And I think you started touching on it. I mean, are you sensing anything in your spirit as you're reading through Scripture of where this puts us in the in a prophetic? I hate to use the word calendar because it does indicate dates, but. The prophetic calendar, the seasons changing. Do you do you see anything from Scripture that is speaking to you right now that says what season we're in? Hmm. I think for me, it's just really 
another indicator of how how late the hour is when we see everything in in matthew 24 when we see the description of what happens before the return of yeshua in the book of revelation and when we have the um, the words given in in the book of daniel that actually yeshua himself quotes from in matthew 24 it just seems to be pointing to all of that and the thing that I don't want to do, what what happens very often here and people who are more involved with Israel is that as soon as a war happens, they start to ask, is this the Psalm 83 war? Is this the Ezekiel 38 war? So I don't want to jump on that bandwagon and try to say it it is or it isn't this, but we see that we're in a very, very vulnerable situation. Um, there are people writing about how it's not only Hamas who are prepared to attack us right now, but that there are um, vast stores of weapons in many of the surrounding nations that, you know, at a certain moment when they're told to, they can pull the trigger and all of this can be unleashed on us in one go. So it's definitely another another stepping stone towards all of that. We know that all of these things have to be fulfilled before before his return we have the the time of jacob's trouble and so on and um this is definitely looking more and more like any of those actually <laughs> um I, I i don't want to stick a label on it and say it's this or it's that but the the level of seriousness has gone up 10 notches that's very clear this is the thing that we've all been dreading the thing that we all knew was was waiting in in the wings and now it, it's like it's starting to be unmasked in front of our eyes and the full horror of it, it's being unmasked. But I think the interesting thing is that as it's being unmasked, I think it is unmasking Islam, it's unmasking Hamas, it's unmasking the reality of the Middle East. And I think on a on an international level, it's almost like it's shoving it in people's faces so that they're forced to make a clear choice. Are you standing with evil or are you standing with with the opposite? And I feel like even in the eyes of those Muslims that I encountered in the shop today, it's like their own religion is being unmasked to them. And actually, as we were praying for Gaza today, that was one thing that I really, I hadn't purposed to pray it, but I found myself crying out for salvation for the people of Gaza, that their own religion would be unmasked in front of their eyes and that this would be the beginning of the unraveling of Islam on an international level, that the people would just wake up and go, oh my gosh, if this is what it is, we don't want to be a part of it, you know, because I think so many Muslims have absolutely no idea actually what their own religion tells them to do. I think the vast majority of them don't even read their own book. Some of them, of course, are very highly learned and they know exactly. But if you talk to the average person on the street here, their concept of of Islam is that they're praying five times a day or you know that they're going one time in their lifetime to Mecca, that they're giving to the poor, that they're fasting on Ramadan. But in terms of a daily reading of, of the Quran, that, that's more something for the, for the elite within their society and so on. So I wonder for how many of them, they're now starting to ask questions. Is this what my religion is really telling me to do? Is it telling me to slaughter children and babies? And because on a daily level, mostly we, ha we have relationship with these guys. We talk to them, we interact with them, we drink coffee with them. We, you know, they're our bus drivers. They're the people in the hotels. 
And I don't think that all of them are sitting in the wings hating us and wanting to kill us. Yes, there are some of them that the moment that their imam gives the, the order, the Kaiba, yes, they will do it. And yes, we've seen some things in the last few days that we have never seen before that have really shaken us. For example, Richard was driving home from Jerusalem yesterday. He had to go and see a group and kind of reassure them and just be present there. He drove home and a siren went off. So what do you have to do if you're driving home? You have to get out of the vehicle, stand by the, get down on the floor, put your hands over your head and basically pray because that's not going to protect you, right? But it's a little better than being in the car. So as he's doing that and he's completely vulnerable, some Muslims drive past him and they laugh and they jeer. And when he told me that, I was shaken to my core because they were in the same situation as he was. They could have been hit by the same rocket that's going over. But they're laughing and they're jeering. And these are not Muslims who are living in the West Bank. These are Muslims who are living in Israel proper. And I went, oh, God, how do we know which are the ones that that are waiting to kill us? Right. And the ones that that we can safely maintain relationship with. But you asked a specific question. I've gone a little bit away from that. Let me put in a couple of points that will bring us back to the question that you asked. So in January, I think it was of uh, 2022, there was a very high level conversation that took place to do with the building of the temple. And I don't, I don't want to give any details about it or, or I definitely don't want to let you know publicly how I know that. Right. But um, I think that the rebuilding of the temple is something concrete in God's prophetic time clock that when we see that, we know pretty much how much time we have, right? So if we see everything getting much closer to that, we know that we're probably nearer than we think. So very high level conversation. Some of the content was to do with where it should be positioned on the Temple Mount, where the money was coming from, how long it would take to build it and so on and so on. Like as if it was a normal conversation, right? We're talking mm. about the rebuilding of the temple and, and that it's a conversation that happened. And um, I know a person who was positioned inside that meeting. Um, so at the same time that that conversation was taking place and I didn't put two and two together until about a month ago and then I went, hang on a minute, wasn't there something else happening in Jerusalem at that same time? So I went back and I compared the dates and I realized, yes, there was. Right at that time, there was a meeting that was described in the, in the international media as being the kings of the earth are in Jerusalem. And... Um, they were all ostensibly there because there was a meeting happening at Yad Vashem, but Jerusalem, all of her major hotels were filled with these kings of the earth, whether they were political leaders, whether they were princes, they were in Jerusalem at that moment that that conversation took place. And then I started to put two and two together and go, hmm, does that mean that this particular figure was in Jerusalem? And the answer was yes. Um, I don't know how closely you followed the uh, coronation of King Charles, but yes. there were a lot of things that were very, very strange about that coronation, including the fact that the olive oil was brought from the Mount of, oil, uh, Mount of Olives, the, um, the ceremony of the anointing of the king was performed in a way that has never happened before behind a closed screen. No one could see what has happened. It was rumored that he was anointed king of Jerusalem. Pretty interesting. A lot of questions to be asked about that coronation and the coincidence of these three things. 
the meeting about the temple, the kings of the earth being in Jerusalem, that particular person being in Jerusalem at that moment, and then this very, very strange coronation with a very strange figure walking in the background. I don't know if you guys saw that. Um, it was all over our social media here. Actually, my son showed it to me. And all of these things just make me go, wow, the hour is very, 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 very late. And we need to make sure that we're right with Yeshua. <laughs> we need to be doing as well, and we need to be bringing in the harvest. And um, we need to be working while there is still daylight, because the hour will come where there isn't anymore. And it's for us here, it's very shocking to go back into a COVID-like situation. I hadn't mentally prepared myself for that when I went to the mall the other day. It hadn't even entered my head. But I went into the mall and exactly the same shops were open as were during the lockdown periods. And I went, oh, it was like a, a kind of trauma reaction to see that again exactly the same and i went wow it's a year and a half since we opened up and here we are back to to square one again the likelihood of me guiding again this year is pretty close to zero catherine i was going to ask are there any american groups over there right now or that were on their way um okay so in terms of american groups in the land so the Shabbat that this all unfolded was also Simcha Torah. It was right at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. So that is the time of the year when the most believers are in Jerusalem because they've come up to celebrate the feast in fulfillment of Zechariah 14. So Jerusalem was packed full of believers from almost every nation on the face of the earth, many of whom had been there since uh, Rosh Hashanah, the... Um, the administrative Jewish New Year. And so many of them are still trapped here now, still thousands of them. They're in hotels in Elat, they're in hotels in the Dead Sea, they're in hotels in Jerusalem. In terms of groups that were supposed to be coming, absolutely, there's going to be many disappointed people right now who are not going to be able to enter the land. Right now, Delta, for example, is saying that there are going to be no incoming flights until at least October the 31st. And I went, whoa, where did they get that date from? They didn't say like um, until further notice or indefinitely or something like this. They, they set a date and I found that very interesting. Where, where did they pull that date from? How did they make that decision? But for now, they've pulled all their flights until the end of the month. So. Yeah, I yeah. actually have two people in my house right now who were my spiritual parents 25 years ago. And um, now they're really getting to see the reality of what what we live with here. And I think it's been a, a shock to the system for them because they had been here um, for the convocation, the All Nations Convocation Jerusalem with people from many, many nations. We just recorded the next um, harp worship video on the Galilee just literally days before this happened. It's so surreal. We were all on the streets, you know, last week we had the, the March of the Nations and that's that happens every Sukkot. 
and it's so moving. What happens is that all the people who've come for the Feast of Tabernacles and so on, they walk in a procession through the streets. They're not only walking, but they've got flags of their nations and they've got all these worship banners and they just process through the streets and they're dancing and they're singing and they're showering. The, the Israelis come and line the streets because it's such a show of solidarity. It moves their hearts and the Israelis stand in the area where they know they're going to walk through and they just cry. And to be honest, I stand there and I cry too, because it's so moving. What made me cry this time was when I saw the delegation from Germany and I thought, wow, what a beautiful redemption. Yeah. It really just brought me to tears. I'd never really noticed the German delegation before, but it was quite a large one this year. I just looked at them and stood on the side of the street and wept. So that was just last week, you know, all of the nations parading. And as they were parading, I, I just had this sense, wow, when Yeshua is ruling and reigning as king of Jerusalem, this is like a little taste of what that's going to look like when the nations stream up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And it was like we were given this glimpse of heaven right before hell invaded. Oh. And it's funny because a couple of weeks before that I was with some people and we were looking at the temple mount and I was like, you know, guys, whatever happens here, we have to understand that all of this is just the noise of the enemy because he knows what's going to happen. He knows Yeshua is coming. He knows that his hour is near and he's like some enraged animal destroying whoever he can right now. And you were saying it's a religious war. And I agree completely, but um, I always like to put it in the context of that our battle is not against flesh and blood, and it's not against these people. Like historically, almost every people group on the face of the earth has tried to destroy the Jews. And so the war is a, a spiritual one, but in particular, the war is the war that we saw during COVID. Exactly. The war is over the Temple Mount and the war is who will be worshipped in Jerusalem, and in particular, who will be worshipped on the Temple Mount. The Antichrist wants to set up his false temple there, right? He wants to receive the worship of all the nations. Why? Because he wants to counterfeit what he knows is inevitable after that, which is that that's the place of Yeshua's footstool. That's the place he's going to come and he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years, right? That's the place where he says he's put his heart, he's put his name, he's put his eyes. And all of this is just the noise before that happens. But honestly, it's very hard to be in the middle of all of that noise and maintain that perspective. But um, I felt like the COVID season in a way really prepared us for that. It taught us that if our dependence is anywhere except God, we're in trouble. We need to be dependent on him for our provision, for our food, for our finances, for our health literally everything and he's worthy of being given that level of trust and if you're stuck in your house well you can use that time you can for your children maintain some kind of normalcy and and routine and discipline and i noticed that the two people who are in our home right now that they're, they're really lost and they're on their phones the whole time and um I'm sitting there going, well, this is not such an unusual situation. Like we know how to deal with it. We're going to think of fun meals to make together and we're going to play games and we're going to do activities and we're going to invite people over and, and just worship and pray and just be together. And 
So I feel like actually that season, hard though it was, was really a very valuable preparation for for what we're facing now. Oh. You you shared with us when we were with you in February about what it felt like during the COVID season. You know, you couldn't leave your house or you couldn't go more than a, a what, 100 meters or something from your home unless you had your Vax card and uh, it, how it felt uh, you know, a lot like another time in history for the for the Jewish people. Yeah. And the preparation, you know, for for now. Um, you said that actually you sort of touched on it, but you know, Gaza, the the Hamas organization called this operation uh, Al Aqsa Flood. Speaking of, you know, the Al Aqsa Mosque, like they're they're not hiding their intentions of what they're fighting for, which was that. Not just Israel, not just Jerusalem. Yes, those things, but that specific piece of real estate. And your your language is better than mine because when I say religious war, it's it's more in in just terms of this is Islam hating Christians, hating Jew you know, the Jewish as a faith. But the spiritual aspect is it's actually hating Jewish people as a people. It's, it's this started thousands of years ago there's been no people group ever persecuted murdered massacred as much as the jewish population and if you are satan and you know that god has made a promise unconditional to abraham he made that unconditional promise you know through christ and then that we could all be in so that the only way we know he could keep his promise through jesus is because he kept his promise to abraham it's it's so cheesy, but I, it's helped me to remember it over the years. Um, I I don't know who to even give credit for it, but if it's if it's true for the Jew, it's true for you. Meaning that if God keeps His promise to Abraham, then we know He can keep His promise, and will keep His promise to us as uh, as Gentiles, as Christians that are grafted into this to this family. That God didn't make a promise to Abraham based upon that he was a good guy, based upon his. It was just because he loved him, because he chose him. And he's kept that promise. And it seems like the spiritual war from Satan is to get God to, if he, if he can take out the Temple Mount, if he can take out Israel, if he can take it, not, it maybe it prolongs it, but it also is it maybe it's just because that's his idea to force God to break his promise, so to speak, that he stopping that from happening means that God didn't keep his word. And we know that he's a word. He keeps his promises. And there's, faith that I have for that. And I'm not living in the middle of it. For me right now, it's ethereal. For you, it's quite literal that, you know, God's promise to the Jewish people was a promise to you, right? To you, Catherine, to your family, to Richard, to your children, to the people. And it's unconditional promise that we as Christians can come alongside, receive that, just the goodness of God that he's, he's invited us into this family now. What is it? This will be the last thing because I want you to get back to your family and get to bed. But what would you say to Christians in America specifically? That's primarily, there'll be some Canadians, but primarily American Christians right now. What message do you, if you could only say one thing, and this is the only thing you got to say today to American Christians, what what would that be? Well, that's a hard one. So I'll just say the first thing that enters my mind and my heart. Something that I was talking about today um, with the people who were in our home and so on was 
that I feel like one of the most important things that we need to ask God for at this hour is discernment, that we need to cry out to him because there is so much that is hidden, so much that is portrayed in a way that is not truth. And it's very hard in the natural to sort out true lies. And um, really, like, we're going to be deep. And if we're going to see things from his perspective, we have to cry out to him for discernment so that we can tell truth from fiction. And I was thinking in context of, um, for example, all the prophetic words that were given during the COVID season. And so many of them were completely off, right? There were all these people that said, oh, it's going to be over by Passover. And, oh, it's going to be, you know, two, three weeks or these things. And I was like, no, I don't think so, because God told me something else. But I'm not on some big platform, so no one's hearing what I'm saying. And they probably don't care anyway. But um, we have to be able to discern truth from lies. We have to, otherwise we are gonna drown in, in this sea of misinformation that we are being overwhelmed with, whatever the subject is. I mean, it's coming at us from all angles, right? Whether it's our health, whether it's what we're eating, whether it's our theology. I mean, God tells us test all things and hold fast to that which is good, right? And this is not something that in general we're taught. I mean, I knew, know that you guys are thinkers, your questioners, you're, you're not people that just accept things at face value, but that's not so normal in our world today. We tend to be lazy and we tend to want to um, accept the things that we're told. But yeah, if I could say anything, it would be that. Let, let's not be lazy. Let's test everything and hold fast to that which is good. And primarily that which is good is this, right? The word of God. And as a tour guide, one of my greatest privileges in, in getting to take people around the, the land is to prove to them using archaeology and history and geography that the word of God is true and that we can stake our lives on it. And I think this is something that we really need to know if we're going to walk through everything that we're going to have to walk through before he comes to rule and reign. If we're going to stand firm, we need to know that we know that we know that we know that his word is truth and we need to measure everything against that. Well, Catherine, thank you for spending, it's probably a late night over there, right? Um, you guys are seven or eight hours ahead of us. Is that right? Yeah, it's almost 10 o'clock here. So <laughs> thank you for spending your evening uh, with us, just sharing your heart. Just know that you have a church full of people praying for you. You have friends back here that are praying for you and your family. And um, we, we would love to be able to stay in touch and, and you know, help however we can from, from Nashville, Tennessee. But know that, uh, know that we are thinking and praying for your country and for you and your family. Thank you so much. It means a lot. To wrap us up, um, I would ask people, the last thing I would say is, Keep your eye on our, our podcast. We'll, we'll be sending out updates as they become available. And definitely continue to pray for Catherine, for Richard, for your children, for, for the people of Israel, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And hey, Catherine, if you could keep us posted as specifically as needs arise, if there's just specific families you come across, your own family, financial needs, whatever, uh, we would be honored to rally our troops to come to whatever aid we can possibly give 
uh, in whatever way possible, again, whether it's finances or whatever else it is, just please keep us posted on that. We would love to and be honored to get to love and serve you guys in that way. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Catherine. Have a good night. Get stressed. <laughs> Thank you.